Amen. We had a wonderful time last night. If you missed it, you missed something. But that's okay uh, because it has been, it, it's on the live feed as well. Thank you. So you can watch it later at your convenience. Today is January 1st, 2012. Today is January 1st, 2012. The first day of a new year. And the thing about January 1st of any new year is that it brings with it a sense of newness of life, a sense of newness of possibilities. It brings with it a sense of the slate being clean, a sense of a start over, a do over, a mulligan, if you will, for those of you golfers out there. Now, actually, in reality, nothing changed. There's no real difference between December 31st and January 1st. It's just another day. The sun came up this morning the same way it did yesterday, and it'll go down tonight the same way it did tonight. But what January 1st does is it brings with itself a sense of the power to change. It brings with it a sense that uh, the old year has passed away and the new year has begun. And so all things have become new. And it brings with itself a sense that I can change this year and make it different from last year. In actuality, what we find is that believers in Jesus Christ bear within themselves by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to change at any moment. You actually don't need to wait till January 1st of the next year. You can change on May 15th. You can change on June 20th. You can change. You can change. Why? Because one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And self-control is the power of self-determination. That is, self-control is the power to say, I'm not going to do that anymore and not do it. Self-control is the power to say, I'm going to start doing this from now on and actually start doing it. Self-control is the power to perpetuate an action or the power to unperpetuate an action at will. And the believer has within the power of their spirit-infused will the power of self-determination, the power to change. However, what January 1st does is it brings about with itself a sense of, uh, of newness because we, for some reason, when we finish an old calendar and begin a new calendar of a new year, we are able to bring our hearts and minds into alignment with the truth that things can be different now. And so I say to you today that all things are passed away All things have become new. 2011 is gone and you ain't never going to get it back. So there's no use feeling shame about it, condemnation about it. There's no use looking back and crying about it. There's no use feeling bad about it, wishing I would have done this, wishing I would have done that. It's time to rise up into 2012 and say, it's time to start afresh. It's time to start anew. And this time we're going to do the thing. Amen. This morning, I want to begin to lay out for you the theme for the year 2012. And the theme for the year 2012 is the year of stewardship. We got it on the, on the screen here. The year of stewardship. In 2012, we are talking about what it means to be stewards of the mysteries of the kingdom. What it means to be stewards of the household of God. And I say to you today that God is looking for stewards in these last days. That there are great things that he wants to do in the earth, but he will only do them through stewards. And there's great resources he wants to release, but he will only release them through stewards. And so what God is looking for are individuals that he can look into your heart and mind and see that you are willing to steward what he's getting ready to pour out. And if you are not willing to steward it, he is going to spare you his judgment by not giving it to you. (laughs) Stay with me now. 
In Genesis 43, 16, the Bible talks about Joseph, who was the 11th son of Jacob, and he was a slave in Egypt, and then he became the prime minister of Egypt. You can read the story, and, and at a certain point, his brothers came to Egypt because they heard there was grain there. Joseph had been storing up grain for seven years, knowing that the famine was coming. And when the famine came, his brothers showed up, and the whole story of what he went through with his brothers, well, in chapter 43... Chapter 43, verse 16, the scripture says that Joseph saw Benjamin, who was his youngest brother, the 12th son of Jacob. He says, when Joseph saw, ben when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Jo uh, Joseph wanted to share a meal with the people with his brothers, but he wasn't going to prepare it with his own hands. Instead, he released that responsibility to the steward. Now, the first thing I must understand is that I am the chief steward over this house called Living Hope Christian Center. And what that means is I have the primary responsibility of preparing meals for this house. Every time the doors open, my responsibility is to see to it that the people of God are fed with the word of the Lord. I am the steward. And when God wants to release a word to this house, he gives the responsibility to his steward. And that is the role that any pastor plays in any church. The pastor is the steward of the house, which means he's the servant of the house. And his job is to take the bread of heaven and prepare it and feed it to the people of God so that there's meat in the house of the Lord and that the people of God are well fed and have plenty to eat. Can I get a witness? However, there is a stewardship that then is passed on to you when you hear it. Listen to me now. When you receive the word from my mouth, you then become the steward of it. And everyone that God wants to feed with that word in your circle of influence, he expects you to feed them. I just want that to settle in just for a second because I don't want to go on until you get that. That you are responsible for every word that you hear. In 2011, I'm passing on that stewardship to you. You know, I remember when I was serving as an assistant pastor at a church in Santa Barbara. And the senior pastor. Now, I, I was, the only two gifts I knew that I had were music and preaching. Now, when you think you have one gift, that's all you want to do. Everything else becomes periphery. But I was an assistant pastor at this church. And he was giving me all kinds of responsibilities, stuff that I had no interest in. And I remember he called me into his office. He said, okay, let's have a meeting. We sat there for an hour, and he talked to me about non-music, non-preaching stuff for an hour. Okay, I need you to do this, and I need you to do this, and I need you to do this. And, I need, and he gave me about 15 things. I said, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Yeah, got it, got it. He said, you got it? I said, I got it. A week later, we came into our weekly meeting. He said, okay, now did you do this? Uh, no, I haven't gotten to that yet. Okay, how about this? Oh, no, not yet. How about this? No, no, I haven't gotten to that yet. Out of the 15 things he gave me, I did about three of them. He said, when are you going to do the other 12? I said, well, I'm going to get to that right now, as soon as this meeting's over. I said, okay, all right, great, okay. Came back a week later. Okay, Benjamin, how are you doing with that list? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Okay, did you do this? Ooh, you know, I forgot to do that one. Okay, how about this? I forgot that one, too. I had done about three more of the things that he had given me. He said, Benjamin, let me tell you what the problem is. For the last two meetings, and this is the third, you sat here in front of me without a pen and paper. You haven't written anything down that I've said to you. 
And when I give you a whole list of things to do and you don't write any of them down, what it says to me is, what I'm saying to you is not important enough to you to document. Because you don't document it, you are depending upon your memory. And you think you're just going to remember 15 things. He says, from now on, don't you come into a meeting with me without a notepad and a pen. And when I say something, I want to see a number one being written on the page and a sentence following it. And when you come back to your meeting with me, I want to see your to-do list that I gave you last week with check marks after every item that I've given you to do. Do you understand that? And finally, I realized in that third meeting that whenever I sat down with my pastor, I was receiving a stewardship. But it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I remember being in seminary, taking a course from a man named Dr. Seyun Kim, who's a world-renowned Pauline scholar. And I was so excited to study under this man. I took my laptop computer to every class. Every, I did not miss one session. I was early because I wanted to get set up. I didn't want to miss his introduction. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to study under one of the greatest scholars, one of the greatest biblical scholars in the world. And I sat there and typed every word that came out of his mouth. I mean, I typed, I was typing furiously and I sat in the front so I could hear him. I didn't want to get distracted by the chatter of the people who actually didn't care about the class. You know why I paid such close attention? Because I knew I was going to use it all. I said before I came in, I want to teach this. I want to get this. Why I made it my stewardship. You know how you can tell whether a body is steward-minded or not? If they're taking notes. Because you know what? I don't care how good your memory is, you cannot listen to a one-hour sermon and remember it all. And that's why the majority of the people of God hear message after message after message after message after message and don't do anything with it. Why? Because we don't see it as a stewardship. We see it as a deposit that I've received but it's just something that we're just, we're getting more and more full, more and more full, more and more full, but we don't know how to give it away because we haven't treated it like a stewardship. Sorry, I was looking at you when I said more and more full. No offense. Have you noticed people say no offense right after something offensive? No offense, but you get on my nerves. Just like people say, I'm not trying to gossip right after they gossip. No, I'm not trying to gossip, but did you see the shoes she was wearing? Okay. Um, what am I talking about? From now on, bring a pad and paper to church and a pen and take notes. I want you to get your iPod out. I mean, iPad, your face box. <laughs> my mother, I don't want one of them face boxes. <laughs> People get on my information, steal my identity. From now on, when you receive the word, receive it as a stewardship for which you have a responsibility to give it away. Let me tell you something. The Lord has spoken to me so clearly that this church is not an evangelism center. You know what it is? It's a ministerial training center. You know what I'm doing every time we come together? I'm training you for the ministry. All of you are full-time are full ministers. If you're going to be a member of this house, you're going to be a full-time minister. 
I'm not, I don't mean a full-time minister who quits their secular job. I mean on your secular job, you're a full-time minister there. Wherever you are, if you're a full-time student, you're a full-time minister as a student in the university where you go to school. If you drive a truck, you're a full-time minister in that truck. Wherever you are, you are a full-time minister. You know, I've learned that when the people of God are in financial lack, it's not because God can't provide for his people, but because God wants to use his people to provide for somebody else. When Elijah was, remember Elijah calls in, in, in uh, 1 Kings 17, Elijah calls for the famine. He says, there will be neither rain nor dew except at my word. And then the Spirit of the Lord takes him up to a mountain and sits him down at the brook. And the, I mean, the famine, there's no water, but there's water for the prophet. Listen, whenever, I don't care if the whole world is in famine, God has water supply set aside for his people. And ravens were bringing him steak sandwiches in the morning and steak sandwiches at night. He said, bread and meat, bread and meat. That's a steak sandwich. All I need is a little cheese and some sriracha. Watch yourself. All of a sudden, the brook dries up and the ravens are late. And Elijah goes, Lord, did you forget about me? You ever felt like that? Did you forget to provide for me? Hello, I gave my tithe. I went to church. I served the ministry. I helped old ladies across the street. (laughs) I heard a comedian. He says, I start believing in God just as the plane is about to take off. He said, and I start thinking, what can I do? And an old lady's trying to put her bag up. And I say, here, let me help you with that. Let me help you. He says, as I'm putting it up, I said, Lord, do you see this, God? You see how good I am? He said, but then when the plane lands, I stop believing in God again. She says, excuse me, sir, could you help me get this down? I said, please, all the work I did to keep the plane in the air, get it yourself. (laughs) So the prophet Elijah, he's eating from the brook, uh, drinking from the brook. All of a sudden the brook dries up. The ravens stop bringing him food. It seems like the miracle stopped. You ever been in the midst of a miracle that just stopped? We were living on unemployment and the unemployment stopped. Seems like the supernatural grace that was falling on my marriage stopped. Whatever it was. My boss liked me, and all of a sudden, my boss's favor for me ran out. It just stopped. Student loans, they stopped. Whatever it was, you feel like in the middle of a miracle, sometimes I feel like I've felt at times, you know, like the the disciples are feeding the 5,000, and the the bread and fish is multiplying in their hands. Can you imagine being, you know, they got to feed 5,000. Can you imagine they hit the 4,500 mark, and the food just disappears? The miracle just stops. Elijah's up there and the miracle stops and he says, Lord, what's going on? And the Lord says, I've commanded a widow in Zarephath to provide for you. Now watch this. Actually, it was the other way around. Elijah was going to Zarephath to provide for the widow, not the widow for Elijah. Had Elijah remained at the brook, that widow and her son would have ate that last biscuit and laid down and waited to starve to death. But because the prophet came to town, listen, when you come into a time of financial lack, it's not because God has stopped providing for you. It's because there's a widow in Zarephath that hasn't heard of him, that doesn't know him, and he's sending you there to provide for that widow. And maybe that widow is a company. Maybe that widow is a business. 
Maybe that widow's a family member that suddenly you have to live with because you can't afford to live on your own. See, the people of God have lived with this inferiority complex complex about their financial situation for too long. We feel like, man, this is not a good witness. This is not a good testimony. The Lord has to bless me abundantly. But right now I have to depend on this person. Right now I have to live in this situation. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm using you as a channel for supernatural blessing for them. Are you hearing me today? My wife and I had to learn that the hard way a few years ago, a family in the church, and, and, and I knew they were struggling. We knew they were struggling. They had actually had to begin receiving food stamps just to eat. And they invited us over their house for lunch after church one Sunday. And we went over there and we sat down at the table. They made us this lavish meal. And we ate and we were full and we were happy and we were fellowshipping and everything was wonderful. And then they said, we have an added blessing for you. And they brought out these bags of groceries and gave them to us. And I thought, oh, no, I can't receive this. This family, you guys need, I thought I can buy groceries for my family. And then they gave me an envelope and I opened it up. It's a hundred dollar bill in it. I, I, everything inside me said, no, this is wrong. I can't receive this. I wanted so badly to refuse. So I can't take this. The Lord said, Benjamin, don't you say a word. You receive it and just thank them. And I thanked them. My wife and I went and sat in the car and cried. And the Lord spoke to me and said, stop crying. This is the means by which I am breaking them through into abundance and blessing. I'm using you as an instrument by which I'm blessing this family. Imagine the prophet Elijah having to ask that widow for a biscuit. Seeing this old broke down widow picking up sticks. Excuse me. Uh. And inside his heart is breaking. He says, could you bring me a little water? She says, sure, no problem. I'll be right back. And she turns and the Lord speaks to the prophet and says, you know I didn't tell you to ask for water. Says, but Lord, do you look at her? I can't ask her for food. Look how amazed she is. She looks like she hasn't eaten. So you ask her for food. Uh, and um, could you just find a crumb of bread? Just a little morsel. And she got mad. <laughs> she said, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I got no bread. That's how people act when you take the offering sometimes. That preacher just wants my money. That's what Elijah was thinking. Everybody in this whole town is looking at me, the fat prophet who's been eating steak sandwiches at the brook. Some well-fed prophet comes to town and a little emaciated widow, bring me a biscuit. I got no biscuits, you fat, lazy prophet. Always eating the big piece of chicken. Some things never change, Dale. I mean, he did it publicly in front of the whole town. And she says, I got no bread, just a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil, enough to make one biscuit. And I'm going to split it with my son. And then we're going to lay down and die. <laughs> can you imagine? Eat your biscuit so we can die, son. <laughs> okay, let's lay down and wait to die. And the prophet says, as surely as the Lord lives, the oil and meal will not run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. However, 
bring me a biscuit first. There's so many believers in the body of Christ saying, Lord, bless me with financial abundance and then I'll bring you a biscuit. And God says, no, you bring me a biscuit first. <laughs> you know what? He stayed there and ate biscuits with that. Now, after a while, you get tired of biscuits. But, but here's the thing. If the Lord is blessing you with biscuits, then you thank him for biscuits and eat biscuits every day. Are you hearing me? <laughs> I'm telling you, do not despise the day of biscuits. Do not despise the day of small biscuits. There are some of you here today and you've been saying, God, I'm tired of biscuits. But he's blessing you with an abundance of biscuits. Whatever the blessing is that God is releasing on your life, you thank him for that blessing. You cherish your blessing and you steward it. You hearing me? You steward the blessing. Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness, they got tired of the manna and they started complaining. We're tired. I mean, God is raining down supernatural bread from heaven and they're complaining. We're tired of the manna. It's meat. We're going to be stewards. Are you hearing me? Okay. Um, I'm going to get into this a little bit. Stewardship. It's the year of stewardship. So, um, look at this. In Genesis 43, 19, it says the brothers of Joseph, they came to the steward of his house. They wanted to get a word to Joseph, but they went to the steward. They didn't go straight to Joseph. They went to the steward. They didn't think they had a close enough relationship with Joseph to go directly to him, but they saw the steward and they knew that the steward had a face-to-face -face conversation with him every day. They knew that the steward had direct access to Joseph. They didn't think they did, but they knew the steward did. So it says in Genesis 43, 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. Listen, there are some people that don't know enough about God to know that they can go directly to him. But when they're looking for a steward. They're looking for somebody that they know has direct access to him. Somebody that they know has face-to-face -face communication with him. Somebody that they know carries within them the resources of the kingdom. And even if they won't go directly to him, they'll go to the steward first. Now here's the beautiful thing. First they went to the steward, but then they sat down at the table with Joseph and ate face-to-face -face with him. Listen, if you release the resources of heaven into the lives of those that are looking for stewards, their next step is they're going to come face to face with God and become stewards themselves. You know, when we were in Ethiopia, we saw this happen again and again and again. People would come to the hotel where we were staying. People would come to the eating place where we were eating and they would ask for prayer. And they came with all kinds of needs. Have you ever wondered why we ask each other for prayer? Now, when you're going to ask somebody for prayer, who do you go ask? You don't go ask that heck of fake, hypocritical, lukewarm believer on the back row. Not the literal back row, but you get, you get it's a metaphor because, because most of the hypocrites are in the middle, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. Some are in the front too, but, but here's, here's the, on the left side, but here's the, no, <laughs> no I, I said something about the back row a couple weeks ago and I saw Lisette sitting back there and I said. Oh, Lord, i got to apologize to her later because I, I didn't mean that. Thank you, Lord. But when you ask somebody to pray for you, you know, I mean, if you're on your deathbed, you're deathly ill, 
and you need somebody to pray for you, who do you ask? I mean, if somebody, there's some folks that would show up to pray for you at your bed, you'd say, send somebody else. Call the church. Say, Pastor, you couldn't think of nobody else to send. Aren't there any believers in the church? You know, anybody with some anointing? No, you just, you naturally militate towards somebody that has at least the type of connection with God that you've got and hopefully greater, right? I mean, you're looking for somebody who can actually get through to him. They went to, J- to Joseph's steward because they knew this man actually talked to him. Notice they weren't just talking to some random guy on the street. When you talk to Joseph, will you tell him? Like, I never even talked to Joseph. You ask some believers, will you, will you talk to God for me? And they, but I never even talked to God. How am I going to talk to him about you? I don't even talk to him about me. <laughs> I haven't received any stewardship from him. I just go to church. <laughs> I wanted to tell you this story. You know, we were at the we were at the eating house in Ethiopia. We were at the eating house one day, and this family showed up, and they brought their father, and he was an elderly man, and he had dementia really bad. Well, they didn't understand the diagnosis of dementia. They just said he was demon possessed. He didn't understand. He didn't recognize anybody, and they said, "Could you please pray for our father?" And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this guy's probably in his 80s. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, people get dementia, you know, it's just, it's just part of the cycle. But, you know, they came, they were desperate for prayer. So I said, okay, let's pray. And uh, Pear was there, Pear laid hands. And so we all came around, we laid hands and we prayed. And I mean, they were weeping. They were so desperate. They journeyed all the way to where we were because they heard some stewards of the household of God were there. And guess what happened? They brought him to the crusade that night. He was completely healed. Suddenly he could recognize everybody again. He was talking lucidly again. The Lord healed the man of his dementia. Why? Because the family rose up and said, let's find a steward. Let's find some stewards of the things of God. Surely they'll be able to release healing. And you should have seen every single one of those services. People came crawling in because they couldn't walk. They came carrying their loved ones in. They came with the blind and the lame and the deaf and the mute. And God was healing them in great abundance. Why? Because we had been given a stewardship. You must understand your stewardship in this season. Now I want you to understand that we, I was initially going to call this year the year of the talent. The year of the talent, and I was going to base it on the parable of the talent and talk about how God has given each of us a talent. Now, the thing you need to understand about the parable of the talent is that all three in the parable received talents, but only two were stewards. It's actually not about having a talent. Every believer has a talent, something that God has entrusted to you. But not every believer is a steward. And watch this. The one with the one talent was the one who refused to be a steward. The one who had the easiest job of stewarding. What's easier to steward, one talent or five talents? If I just give you a little tiny task, just all I want you to do is vacuum from this line to that line. That's it. That's your stewardship. What's easier to do that or to say, I need you every week to clean this entire facility all the way down to the children's church. And I mean, wash the windows of dust. What's easier? But the guy with the five talents was the most faithful steward. The guy with the smallest task. You know what we find in the church? Is the people who typically have the smallest amount of of responsibility are the least faithful with it. And I'll tell you why. It's because believers in Jesus Christ have for too long had an inferiority complex. 
Because the one with the one talent just felt like what I have is insignificant. This guy has two. The guy closest to me has double what I have. And the guy furthest from me has 500% of the calling and gifting and purpose and anointing and significance that I have. And what? You know? And it's going to go from 5 to 10 for that guy. For me, it'll only go from 1 to 2. I'm 8 away from him instead of 4 in one year. And so when we begin to feel like what we have is insignificant, we begin to belittle the stewardship that God has given us and we bury it in the ground. God didn't give me what he gave anyone else. Let me tell you something. It has nothing to do with the size of the stewardship you have been given from God. It has everything to do with your faithfulness to it. Because God can take a little stick and use it to turn nations upside down. And use it to vanquish armies. Listen, when God went to make Moses a deliverer, he just said, Moses, what's that in your hand? A stick. It's just a stick. He said, good, that's all you need. With that, you're going to strike down the Egyptians and bring my people out. With this stick. Can you imagine being Moses? God, you're tripping. They got swords and spears and chariots and horsemen and shields and armor. And you're telling me that I'm going to go in there with this stick. He said, yeah, that's right. That stick. That stick. I'm going to empower that stick. Listen, when God comes on a stick, that stick is more mighty than a nation. Are you hearing me? With that stick, Moses smote the Jordan River and it turned to blood. With that stick, Moses held it out over the waters and the waters parted. With that stick, he drowned the entire army of Pharaoh. With that stick, he delivered Israel from bondage. All because he was willing to give God the stick. You say, well, I don't have a great prophetic. Do you have a stick? I mean, can you find a stick in your backyard? If you can find a stick on the ground, God can raise you up to be a deliverer. Are you hearing me? But you must break free of the inferiority complex about the stewardship that you've been given and recognize that there's no such thing as an insignificant believer in the kingdom of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a stewardship. You've got a powerful anointing on your life. There's something God has put in your life and you must break free from that inferiority complex and make a decision. I'm simply going to be faithful with the stewardship that God's given me. If it's vacuuming this little square, man, I'm going to rule over this square. I'm going to take dominion over the dust of the ground. I'm going to take dominion over every power of lint and over every power. I'm talking about crumbs and lint. They're going to submit to my authority. Why? Because I've been made a kingdom ruler over this square right here. And there will be no crumbs in my dominion. I say that and I'm going to rule. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? And when you are faithful with little, God makes you master of much. You know what the one with the one talent was saying? Lord, give me more and I'll be faithful. And God's saying, it don't work that way. You be faithful and I'll give you more. Okay, we're going to take this to another level. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. In Luke chapter 5. And this is the heart of really what I'm trying to get to today. In Luke chapter 5, the scripture tells us that Jesus was teaching by the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were pressing him into the water. And there was a young man by the name of Simon who had fished all night, caught no fish. And he was folding his nets. He wanted to go home. He was super tired. He wanted to go to sleep. And uh, as he was folding his nets, Jesus climbed into his boat and just taught the multitudes from his boat. How many know that when Jesus wants to climb into your boat, he does not ask for permission? 
The Lord will take over your ship. He will come into your, your vessel. He will not ask permission. They say, well, he's a gentleman. Not really. He knows he's Lord. <laughs> so he gets done teaching and then he turns to Peter and says, why don't you shove off into the deep waters for a catch? He says, well, Lord, I, you know, we fished all night. We ain't caught nothing. Translation, uh, Lord, you're a good teacher and all, but we're expert fishermen. And, uh, you know, if we couldn't catch fish, they just can't be caught. But because you said so, he could just see the look in Jesus' face. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to question me? All right, we'll do it. We'll do it. All right, calm down. It's cool. Pushes out into the deep waters, lets down his nets, and every fish in the lake jumped in his net. So many fish jumped in his net that he had to call his friends with their boats nearby to come help him with this catch. It was too much for one boat. Listen, when the Lord falls on a house, when the Lord falls on a people and releases an anointing for catching fish, I tell you, the catch is too much for one boat. We got to call other churches and say, you got to take some of these folks because we can't, man, we got folks being saved right and left. Will you come help us? Let's get, let's start three or four more churches and, and let's spread them out because we got too many. We can't find a building big enough. We can't have enough services to hold all of the people that are coming. But in our own power, we'll fish for years and not catch anything. Now watch this. Peter, he sees all the fish jump in the net. He falls on his knees. He says, Lord. Leave me alone and go away. I'm a sinful man. Translation, Lord, if you can see where the fish are in this lake, you can see where the sin are, is in my heart. If you got x-ray lake vision, you got x-ray heart vision. And I don't want you seeing this mess. So leave me alone. I'm a sinful man. He said, don't be afraid, Peter. Just come follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. From now on, you're going to fish for men. Jesus said, when I'm done with you, you're going to fish for men. The problem in the body of Christ is we do not have a discipleship and evangelism vision. When we think of what a mature believer looks like, we think of a believer who does not smoke, does not drink, does not chew, does not go with girls who do, gives a tithe and an offering, comes not only to Sunday service, but to midweek, listens to the podcast when they're out of town, and serves a ministry. And has a daily time in prayer, has a quiet time, or QT. You know what's missing from all, all that? is great. By the way, we want you to do all that. But Jesus said, when you're full grown, you're going to fish for men. And the same way I made fish jump into your net, I'm going to make men jump into your net when you throw out the net of the gospel. You know what a full grown believer looks like to Jesus? A fisher of men. He's catching men. And that's a believer. That's what a believer looks like. Not an apostle, not a prophet. What we've done is we've taken very simple, fundamental roles that are for all Christians and we've absorbed them into the office of the apostle or the prophet or the pastor or the evangelist or the teacher. Says, well, I'm not an evangelist. That's why I don't ever share the gospel with anybody because I'm not an evangelist or a pastor. The question is, are you a Christian? And the problem with the church in America is that it, has not, it is not very Christian anymore. Christianity can be reduced to four commandments. Remember, Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. How? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And two, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. A disciple is someone who does everything that Jesus commanded. There are really only four commands that Jesus gave. 
Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those are in Matthew 22. And remember, when he describes loving your neighbor, he's talking about loving a stranger. He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan who just found a stranger dying by the side of the road and he helped him out. Jesus said, that's what you should do. Love your neighbor. But then there was a third commandment in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he said, by this all men will know that that you are my disciples, that you love one another. There's a distinction between loving your neighbor, some stranger on the street, and loving one another. Loving the other disciples of Jesus Christ. It should be a heightened expression of love. That is, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That is, people should see believers loving other believers and say, I want to get up in that. When we begin to obey that command, people will be drawn to the church. But if you ask 90% of people why they don't go to church, all they're doing up in there is backbiting and fighting and talking bad about each other and gossiping and it's hypocrites up in there and the pastor's talking bad about people and people are talking bad about the pastor. And I went to that church and I talked to five members of the church and all they did was talk bad about each other. And other... No wonder nobody wants to join. Hello? So the first command, love God. The second command, love strangers, love everybody. The third command, love other disciples. And then the fourth command is go into all the world and make disciples. If you're not actually making disciples, you're missing 25% of your Christianity. 25% of what it means to be a Christian is sharing your faith. Now, the problem in America is only 4% of believers share their faith. That means in a room of 200 believers, 8 of them are sharing their faith. That has nothing to do with who's being effective. Let me tell you how effective that 4% of believers are. The church in America is shrinking by 15,000 churches a year. Clean slate today, right? January 1st, 2012. Well, guess what? January 1st, 2011, we had 15,000 more churches in America than we do today. 15,000 churches shut down in the last one year. Why? Because Christians are not being very Christian. What if? Just call me crazy. But what if every Christian was reaching people for Jesus? Wow. Just imagine what that would be like. Every believer, a fisher of men. Every believer, a fisher of men, every believer, you know what would happen? A church of 200 people would become 400 in one week. And the next week it would become 800. And the next week it would become 1600. And the next week it would become 3200. You know how easy that is? Or let's say it takes everybody a whole month to lead one person to Christ. It goes from 200 to 400 in one month and the next month 800 and the next every month it would double every month does that sound ridiculous you got to get that ridiculousity out of your mind and heart because what you're thinking is that being a christian is an impossible task if you think it's impossible for you to reach people for jesus you think it's impossible to be a christian because that's what christians do we got to get faith for basic, fundamental Christianity. In 2012, God is restoring our faith in the fact that we can just be Christians, real ones. I'm not asking you to be an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher or a deacon or a bishop or an elder or a, a 
jurisdictional prelate, an overseer, uh, uh, you know, I'm not, forget the titles. Let's all just be Christians. Let's all just be Christians. Let's everybody in the church be a Christian. We're going to love God. We're going to love others. We're going to love each other. And we're going to make disciples. And how do you make a disciple? You teach them how to love God, how to love others, and how to love one another. That is, every spiritual problem comes from either a failure to love God, a failure to love others, or a failure to love one another. That's it. So if you can teach people how to love God, how to love outsiders, how to love insiders, then they can go and teach others how to love God, how to love outsiders, and how to love. And now you're making disciples. Every believer can do it. Discipleship is not just for apostles or prophets or evangelists. It's not a, a, a it's not a role that is that is that is locked up in a title. It's for all believers. To do. Okay, I'm going to give you a strategy for evangelism for 2012. This is what the Lord told me. The Lord told me that every member of this house is going to lead people to Christ in 2012. Everybody. Everybody. I want you to get that in your heart and mind because I need to break all of that unbelief off of you. This is what I can't do. I've tried. No, 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 no. It's fresh. It's new. Old things are passed away. I don't care how many times you tried. This year, you're going to lead people to Christ. And the Lord gave me Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22. The least will become a thousand. The least. The most heck of fake, hypocritical, lukewarm believer in this room will lead at least a thousand people to Christ in your lifetime. Amen. Two people believe me. <laughs> the least will become a thousand and the smallest a mighty nation. The least of you will become a thousand. I don't care if you haven't cracked a Bible like Devin said, like an old book, you because your Bible is dusty. I don't care if you open your Bible and a cloud of dust comes up. It's been so long. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this year, you're going to really get right and you're going to really get on the ball and you're going to lead people to Christ this year. You're hearing me. I'm going to give you a very simple strategy. You're going to be fishers of men this year. And I, you, I'm going to talk to you differently this year. It's not about preaching sermons this year. I'm training you. Every Sunday when you come, you're being trained. Here's what you're going to do. Number one, today, you're going to ask the Lord to give you one person. Before the day's over, you choose that person. Matter of fact, choose them right now. And make it somebody you know. We're not going to do street evangelism, door-to-door evangelism. Why? Because... We'll come to church and go out and talk in the street to people we've never met before and probably will never see again. But we won't talk to people that we've known for years. If you can't, in, if you can't lead somebody to Christ that you already have influence with, you can't lead somebody to Christ that you don't have any influence with. <laughs> Pick one person right now. Pick that person. Write them down. Here's the, here's the strategy. Here's the strategy. Pray for that person every day. Take a side time, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, maybe an hour. Every single day at the same time, pray for that person. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would break every power of deception off of their life. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would reveal Jesus to them. The thing that you and I need to understand is that evangelism is not in a strategy. It's not about how good we are at presenting the truths of the gospel. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit to infiltrate their lives. What we're really doing in praying for that person every day is we're coming back to faith in the saving power of God. The problem is the church has stopped believing the gospel. We don't believe it is the power of God unto salvation anymore. But I declare to you today that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we're going to see souls saved. One person, not ten. Not two. 
not three. Here's a big problem. You know, it's kind of like some people enroll in college and they change their degree every year. And that's why it takes them 20 years and they're still a junior. (laughs) You know? What happens is people start praying for the lost and they pray for this person today. And three days later, they're disillusioned because the person's not saved yet. So then they're praying for somebody else. And three days later, they're praying for somebody else. Then they stop praying for the lost altogether. And then six months later, they start praying for somebody else. And you don't see anybody saved in the whole year because you won't focus on one. You pick one and you're going to pray for that person until they get saved. I don't care if it's December 30th, 2012, and they still haven't been saved yet. You're going to believe they're going to get saved on December 31st. You're not going to stop praying for that one person until they get saved. You're going to pray for them every day. And every 10 days, you're going to reach out to them and contact them. Every 10 days. And when you do reach out to them and contact them, you're not just going to force the gospel on them. You're going to just talk to them, love them, connect with them. And in the back of your mind, you're going to pray, Lord, turn this conversation towards you. Lord, turn this conversation. Give me wisdom. Tell me what to say. Give me understanding. Tell me how to lead this person to you. Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. You must see it as a process, not an episode. Typically, when we do evangelism, what we're trying to do is move people from negative 10 to positive 10 in one conversation. And it almost never works that way. You know what? If you move them from negative 10 to negative 9.5, you should shout victory. Victory. Next time I talk to them, I'm moving to negative 9. If it takes me six months to get them to zero, that's progress. Next, I'm going to get them right over the edge. You're a steward of that individual that God has put in your heart right now. That person you've selected, you're a steward of their salvation. You're a steward. And here's the key. When they finally receive Christ, you are not going to say to them, now go find yourself a good church. This is not catch and release evangelism. You're going to bring them to church with you. Say, but they live in Tracy. Then if you need to, you're going to drive to Tracy and pick them up at 7 a.m. Sunday morning and bring them to this house to worship. Why? It almost never works. It's like when a child is born laying the baby on the curb and saying, hope you find a good family. (laughs) Or dropping them off at somebody else's house and say, this is your family now. When you lead them to Christ, you are the one that birthed them into the kingdom. You're their parent. You're responsible for them now. So here's what you're going to do. As soon as you lead somebody to Christ, you're going to shoot an email to decisions at livehope.us. Decisions at livehope.us. Decisions at livehope.us. And in that email, you're going to give your name. You're going to give the person's name that you just led to Christ. And you're going to tell a short testimony of what happened. That email is going to go to Robin Veray, our director of integration. He's going to check in with you every month to find out their progress because now you're discipling that person. Say, well, I don't feel qualified. Well, then you better get yourself ready. That's why you need to come to church because I am preparing you for that. I'm preparing you for that stewardship. He said, well, I got some backtracking to do. You know what? God dropped some great revelation in 2011. Get on the podcast and listen to every sermon that I preached in 2011. That will prepare you. You get all that stuff. You listen. You take notes. You prepare yourself. You will be ready to shepherd those people that God gives you. It's now about your ministry. In 2011, it's about your ministry. In 2012. Testing. Testing. In 2012, it's about your ministry now. 
And it's about your stewardship of souls. Amen. 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 You do this, we're going to see 100 salvations by Easter Sunday. Amen. And two people believe me. <laughs> we're going to see 100 salvations by Easter Sunday. If we do this, if we do this, we have a stewardship now. We have a stewardship. God is making you stewards. But from now on, it's about it's about being active and being about the Father's business. We've sat on the shelf for too long. And listen, there's some of you here that still think, I'm not ready. I'm still broken. I'm too damaged. I'm too... Listen, you get all of that junk out of your head. This is not about the ministry. It's about Christianity. You say, I'm not ready to be... Are you not ready to be a Christian yet? You are already a Christian. That means you should be making disciples. But I got this issue and that issue. I don't care what issues you got. God is setting you free from all of those issues. Now you're going to begin. And you say, but I'm not very deep. Well, whatever. If you know Jesus, you're going to help somebody know that. You know, you're going to help people to get to the level you're at. But you know what? When you're caring for people and discipling people, what happens is every day you think, I need to get more. I need, you want to talk about, you want to grow as a believer? Start caring for other believers. Start reaching people for Jesus. There's, that's the only way you can grow is if you start giving away what you have and put a demand on the anointing to get more. Now you're ready. Now you're going to grow. Now you're going to develop. And God is going to do it in 2012. We're going to reap a great harvest. I have many more things to share with you, but the time will not permit. So I will close this service now. But this is what I will say in closing. Make sure if you're a member of this house to be at the membership meeting next Sunday after church because we are going to really hone down what it means to be a member of this church and get everybody active in being about the Father's business. There will be no inactive, unproductive, unfruitful members in this house. I declare it in Jesus' name. If you're going to be a member here, God is going to use your life. He's going to use you for his glory, and we're going to get you ready to reap a harvest for the kingdom. Everybody stand. Mm. Father, I speak your blessing. Lift your hands to the Lord right now. Father, I speak your blessing over this house today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I release your people into their stewardship. In Jesus' name. I release your people into their stewardship. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I activate your people. Lord, some of us have been inactive and it's because we've carried an inferiority complex. But, Father, today in the name of Jesus, I break your people free from that. There are no insignificant members of the body of Christ. The the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The toe can't say to the finger, I'm more significant than you are. Even the parts that seem to be less significant, they're actually more significant. And Lord, there are some members of this body that have felt that their ministry is insignificant in the body. Father, I break that lie off their hearts and minds right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And I activate you for the work of the Lord. I activate you for the work of the Lord. And I say, I don't care what you've been through. I don't even care what you're going through. It's not about you anymore. Now it's about the harvest. I've never sensed such an urgency in my spirit to reach a harvest. And I've never sensed such an expectation of impending revival in my spirit. The revival is coming in 2012, but God says the anointing is on the house. The anointing is on the house. The anointing's on you. 
It's about your ministry now. You're not coming to see my ministry. You're coming to get empowered for your ministry. It's about your ministry now. It's about your ministry now. That mantle of Elijah is not falling on one Elisha anymore. It's being broken up and a piece of it is laying on every member of the house. It's a corporate anointing now. It's a corporate anointing now. It's a corporate anointing, but you're going to lay claim to it. I want you to lift up your hands, open your mouth, and lay claim to the anointing to be about your father's business. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Whoa. Yeah. Come on, get a hold of it. Open up your mouth. Receive, receive. Receive the stewardship today. Receive the stewardship today. Hallelujah. Receive it. Listen. Listen. You need a new anointing for this year. My wife and I are going to anoint you with oil this morning. You need a new anointing. There's some of you this morning, you just received this. And you said, I'm going to do it. 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 I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to be about the Father's business. I'm going to be a part of reaping that harvest. I want you to come to this altar. We're going to anoint you with oil. We're going to anoint you with oil, and God is going to release a new anointing. God's going to release a new anointing, a new anointing. He's going to do a quick work. He's going to break you free. He's going to break you free. You say, there's so many obstacles in my way. God is getting ready to remove obstacles. I don't care if everybody comes to this altar. We're anointing everybody with oil today. You're not going to leave without your anointing. You're not going to leave without your empowerment. You're not going to leave without the deposit. You're not going to leave without your authorization. Come on, just lift your hands and receive it. As we anoint, we're going to come through. You're going to have to make room to let us through. But everybody's getting it today. Everybody. Nobody's being left out of this. The anointing breaks the yoke. The anointing sets you free. You say, I got issues. The anointing is about to break those issues. In Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, I release the anointing on you. I release the anointing on you to be about the Father's business. In the name of Jesus, I release the anointing on you. Come help, Joseph. I release the anointing on you. I release the anointing. I release the anointing on you. I release the anointing on you. Joseph, right here. Let me anoint you first. I release the anointing on you right now. And I release you into the new season. I authorize you in the name of Jesus. I declare the anointing breaks off everything that stands in the way. In Jesus' name. Now you anoint, folks. In Jesus' name, I anoint you for the new season. And no stronghold of sickness is going to stop you this year. It stood in your way for too long, but no more. In the name of Jesus, I authorize you for the new season. I anoint you for the new season. I consecrate you for the work of the Lord. Nothing will stand in your way. Nothing will stand in your way. I consecrate you for the new season. Nothing will stand in your way. I declare it in Jesus' name. Let me get some of that oil. In Jesus' name, I consecrate you for the new season. I consecrate you for the new season. Receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You're going to reap a harvest. 
receive it in the name of Jesus. Receive an anointing, an anointing for the harvest, an anointing for the harvest. In the name of Jesus, you're going to receive an anointing. In the name of Jesus.